welcome to the Den History Podcast, where we give the past new life. We are your hosts, Matt and Jennifer Jones, and we're very happy to be here with you. Thanks for listening to our new podcast. So you might be wondering, why do we need another podcast? There's so many podcasts out there already. They talk about true crime. They talk about spooky stuff. They talk about how to get stains out of your carpet. We've heard many of those. We listen to them a lot. We drive a lot. We have a huge long commute. We're huge fans and have several friends who produce podcasts as well. We're not here to dilute those already out there. We have some stories and content we think you might enjoy in addition to those great productions. Jennifer, tell the listeners about The Dead History. What makes us different? Well, The Dead History is actually a blog that I started back in 2012. So um, I've been investigating the paranormal for the last 13 years. Used to run a paranormal investigation team. We would go out all the time. It's exhausting. Um, I love history. I love the history, not only behind the locations, but the actual people involved. And I really felt like there was a need to get the truth about, you know, urban legends and how they came to be and haunted places. There's so much stuff out there that's just simply not true. And I think it takes away from the great spookiness of the stories. Um, so I dig really deep. You know, I dig into the historical records. I talk to people. I get as much information as I can. I try to paint like the full picture of whatever we're talking about, whether it's a haunted place, an urban legend, really creepy cemetery. I'm into all of it. We're both into weird stuff. We're huge fans of historical crime. So our, our podcast will have a little bit of everything, including that. So we want to bring you updates every podcast. In the last week, we've been super busy even before that. Uh, getting our content and or, uh, format organized, getting everything organized, along with all the technical stuff we've had to wrangle uh, to begin bringing these stories to you in this new format. Well, it's new to, new to us anyway. Um, we're really excited to bring this to you. So let's get down to it. Jennifer, what are we talking about today? So this episode, we're actually going to talk about Lily Gray. Um, her grave is in the Salt Lake City Cemetery and her story is pretty well known inside of Utah, at least bits and pieces of it, especially for those that live near Salt Lake City. When I first moved to Utah years ago, it was one of the first things that uh, people told me when they found out I was into weirdness. You know, you need to check this out. Have you seen her grave yet? Um, not growing up in Utah, I was not familiar with it at all. But I'm guessing for someone like Matt, who grew up in Salt Lake City, you'd probably heard about her before. Oh, yeah, I'm a townie. Um, lived here all my life and definitely in, in high school, uh, I kind of hung out with the goth crowd, um, you know, being the outcast, we kind of snickered and told stories in the back of the room. Um, and this was definitely one of those. Um, we also used to sw uh, swap stories about, you know, ghosty stuff and, um, spooky stories. Um, and Lily Gray's grave, although I hadn't seen it until I was an adult was, you know, at the top of the list because of the inscription on, on the stone. So. I uh, don't want to take that away from Jennifer. Why don't you tell us more about why why it's been so popular? All right. So before we get to that, I just want to give you guys a little bit of a background. Um, the Salt Lake City Cemetery is absolutely huge. It's 120 acres. It has nine and a half miles of old narrow roads. And there's over 124,000 people buried there. It's the biggest cemetery in Utah. Um, and on top of that, it also has a couple of really cool stories attached to it. Um, Lily Gray is one of them. There's a great urban legend about Emo's grave. And then it's also known as um, the place where the infamous grave robber of Utah did his dirty deeds, Jean Baptiste. Um, but Lily's grave is unique. She doesn't have a, a urban legend attached to her. It's all about the inscription on her epitaph. 
And, you know, usually when headstones have an epitaph, they're heartwarming or, you know, they mother or something loving towards whoever's buried there. Um, Lily's, on the other hand, her epitaph is just full on weird. So the inscription on the stone, the epitaph was actually what everybody talked about back in the day, mostly because I didn't know anything other than what that information was on the on the grave. But on the grave, it actually says in this low stone, uh, unassuming gravestone, it says at the bottom, victim of the beast, 666. Now, to an upcoming goth kid back in the day, that was the coup de gras. I mean, aside from Emo's grave, and we'll get to that to another time, but um, having 666 on your headstone, victim of the beast, the beast, 666, that's pretty freaking creepy. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty hair-raising. So. Her her story was definitely, uh, you know, top of the list of, of what these creepy little kids all in black sitting in the back of the classroom would be talking about. So with her epitaph um, over the years, and especially I think they probably really took off in the late 70s, early 80s, um, people started coming up with all of these explanations that would make, help make sense of why this would be on this woman's headstone. And the more popular ones were that she was murdered in some horrific fashion. Um, She was a follower of Aleister Crowley, who you might know was often referred to as the Great Beast. Um, And then the one that makes me laugh the most, because I, you know, satanic panic of the 1980s, was that she was a Satan worshiper. And this is how she was showing her I guess, love of Satan or that she was murdered by Satan worshipers um, during a satanic ritual. Right. It, it definitely paints a, a sensational picture with just a few words, right? Victim of the beast. You know, did, did Satan come up out of the, the pit and, and take her life or something like that? Um, you know, it, it definitely draws more questions than answers. The funny thing is, though, I mean, she died at the age of 78. So this wasn't, you know, some young woman that was cut down in her prime that I think would maybe lead people to jump to that conclusion that she was murdered. Um, But, you know, people didn't have access to the information back then. In Utah, um, once someone's been dead for 50 years, their death certificate becomes public record. So anyone can access it and find out. And so for those of us in Utah... We had to wait until 2008 to be able to access her death certificate and find out what her actual cause of death was. And I I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Wait, wait. It wasn't incineration. It wasn't like crushed by some brimstone lava coming out of some sort of hole in the ground or something like clawed, like Carrie style pulled down into the into the earth. Nothing like that. No. She died a completely natural death. Actually, she died in a hospital. That is shocking. I want my money back. <laughs> so I'll give you her actual cause of death, and then um, we'll go through her history. And I think you'll start to see how this epitaph ended up on her headstone. Um, her actual cause of death was a pulmonary embolism. So she died from a blood clot in her lungs. Uh, it appears that she was probably fairly sick towards the end of her life. She had renal insufficiency, nephrotic syndrome. She wasn't a real healthy lady, but... Can you talk about those? What is what is that? I mean, renal means kidney, right? What's, yeah, what's so she just syndrome? she basically had kidney failure. Oh, that's sad. That's a sad way to die. Right? So, I mean, imagine, like, here's my thing with, with 
when there's headstones like this or stories like this, you know, this was an actual lady that was alive. She had family. She had friends in town. And I'm sure, you know, based on her age, she probably didn't have a a ton of friends that were still left once the rumors about her headstone really took off. But, you know, she did have nieces and nephews and things like that. So here's people talking about their beloved Aunt Lily and how she, you know, was a victim of the beast and they knew how she really died. So I always kind of feel bad. Yeah, that must have been a shock to them. They come up and say, what the heck? Yeah, this nice this nice old lady that I used to know that died of kidney failure in the slow, painful, sad way. Somebody wrote this on her stone. What could have led to that? Right. It gets weirder. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> what was Lily's life like before she died? Um, you know, I think her life was a little bit on the strange side. Um, she was born June 4th, 1880 in a small town in Ontario, Canada. Um, weird. That's really weird. I know, it's so weird. Um, as a researcher, one of the tricky things about actually tracing her throughout the years was her maiden name was also Gray. So that makes it a lot more difficult. Um. Lily Gray Gray? Lily Gray Gray, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's Gray Gray. Right. Please don't do that again. (laughs) Okay. Um, So Lily had a twin sister named Ethel Sarah Gray. And um, Ethel's story is also kind of interesting for for a different reason. They had eight children total in their family. Uh, They came from a farming family. So there's nothing like real unusual there. Um, Her family immigrated to Benzie, Michigan in 1880, shortly after the twins were born. Um, And by July 1898, Lily's twin sister was admitted to the Transverse City State Hospital, where she would stay until her death in 1917 at the age of 36. The thing about um, the Transverse City State Hospital is that it's actually one of the most haunted um, places in Michigan. And it's not anywhere near being like a hospital or asylum anymore. Actually, most of it has been torn down. But there were a couple buildings left. And if I remember correctly, they have turned at least one of those buildings into a condo unit, like a, a thing of condominiums. So I bet it's haunted. I'm sure it is. No doubt. So when her sister died... Uh, Lily was age 36 as well, and she was still unmarried and living at home. And I have to think that that would have been slightly unusual given the time period. Um, I'm guessing that that would have put her into the spinster class back, you know, during the 1917. Oh, yeah. So never married until the age of 46. Yeah. 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 I I think I think it was common that after your 20s, well, married, right? So she was, yeah, I mean, I would have, I would have assumed that she would have been married by her mid twenties at the latest. I mean, it was common. Right. So when her sister dies, she's living at home. And then just like not even a year later, um, Lily's in Chicago, Illinois. So she's moved from Benzie, Michigan to Chicago And on October 8th, 1918, she married a man named Richard C. Walsh. Um, The unusual thing about this is he was 67 and she was 38. May to December. So she went from not being married for a really long time to marrying someone that was much, much older than her. Man, how that must have been. Yeah. 
She didn't have to deal with him too long, though, because he died a few years later in 1925. Reminds me of that line from Dracula. We just watched Dracula, binged uh, the first season, where it was uh, the uh, Van Helsing nun. She said uh, about being a nun, being trapped in a loveless marriage in order to maintain a roof over your head. I wonder if that came into play at all. Most definitely. Yeah. I bet. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. So um, less than a year after Richard's death, Lily remarries. She marries a man named Frank Zimmerman in November 1926. This time they're a little bit closer in age. So Lily was 46 and Frank was 50. Um, and they also both worked in the post office in Chicago. Um, they seem to get along really well and were married for 17 years until Frank died in August of 1943. Anything about what he died from? I don't remember offhand, but it was natural. Oh, so no chance of an insane yeah. scam or anything like well, that? Well, I thought maybe she was, you know, bumping husbands right. off, but no, they both died from natural causes, so okay. nothing too weird. As far as they could tell in 1943. Right. Like, doo, 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 doo. So after this, um, and the one thing, so... Uh, I've been researching Lily for easily 10 years. Um, and the one thing I've never been able to definitively answer is how she ended up in Salt Lake. Why did she move to Salt Lake? There was something that brought her out here. Um, and from what I can tell, she most of her family at the time was still in Michigan. She might have had a couple of relatives in Colorado but I haven't been able to find that she had anybody in Utah. So I'm not quite sure why she moved to Salt Lake, but um, she moved to Salt Lake in 1950. And this is where she would meet her third and final husband, the enigmatic Elmer Lewis Gray. Right. Now, this, is, this seems like a good time to talk about the red herring that came up in the research. Um, you know, when, when you're researching something, you've sometimes come down a dead end. But this was probably the most compelling dead end that um, well, I was personally involved in, uh, for one thing. So uh, being a smidge of a narcissist, I thought that it was pretty interesting to me. But the crazy thing about this is when Jennifer was researching um, Lily Gray, she found the marriage certificate between uh, she and Elmer. Uh, and as a witness on the, on the signature line on the, the marriage certificate was the name Betty Jones, which kind of rocked me because, first of all, my grandmother's name was Betty Jones. And second of all, Lily Gray and Elmer lived in merely adjacent to my grandmother's neighborhood, uh, which totally freaked me out. So, you know, my grandmother kind of worked at a store, a drugstore, uh, Earl's, uh, back in the day that, that was fairly uh, central in the community. So we thought, you know, kind of making up a story in our heads, maybe they met there, something like that. On top of that, the signature looked exactly like my grandmother's signature. Now, how far can you go off with a name like Betty Jones? It's cursive. Everybody learned the same cursive back in the day. It looked like Betty Jones. Betty Jones looked like Betty Jones. So we went, up, we went down that rabbit hole for, what, three months? Yeah, it was a long time. Like we had relatives digging up old examples of your grandmother's handwriting right. to try to see if we could match the signatures. Right. And, and the tragedy was we couldn't ask my grandma because she had died only four months before we found this piece. So it was a huge mystery. Um, but it turns out it was a red herring because 
Jennifer, being the brilliant researcher that she is, found that Lily had another friend named Betty Jones. Well, I didn't think it was that. I thought it was the ages. Your grandmother would have been like really, really oh, young. That's right. That's right. So, besides, so I mean, it's besides still besides that. Besides that, though. it still technically could be your grandmother. It would but just she, she be wouldn't be weird. able to sign. She wouldn't be able to sign as a a witness, right? In Elko. Well, she wouldn't have been a. I don't think she would have been a yeah, under exactly. age. She wouldn't have. Well, what year was she born? Okay, so we went offline just for a moment. Turns out my grandmother would have only been 13 years old, so she probably wouldn't have been able to make the journey to Elko at that age. Uh, plus, she wasn't even in Utah at that age. She was, uh, she was living in Idaho at the time. Um, so, Red Herring, thanks for taking that trip with us. Uh, anyway, we should probably continue. Elmer. Elmer was a real gem. He was a real peach, wasn't he? Something yeah, like so Elmer... I think if I had to kind of sum him up completely is he never told the truth or very, very, very rarely told the truth. Was he like a member of the PLO pathological liars? Yeah. Like he, he would constantly make up stories and it, it wasn't just in situations where, you know, it might help him get out of trouble. It was like in random situations too, like, Filling out the draft card. Hmm. Weird. What do you mean? Um, <clears throat> well, let's talk about him a little bit first. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, Elmer was from Butler, Missouri. Uh, he was born March 12th, 1881. So, you know, very close in age with Lily. Um, he was on the wrong side of the law from pretty much like jump. I don't think he... He didn't even make it out of his teen years without getting in trouble with the even law. Even as a boy, everybody could tell? Probably. Hmm. And everybody said if he didn't make it to greatness, that he'd go to hell? Is this a song? No. No, I mean, Where am I missing? <laughs> so, Elmer, um, in between 1900 and 1909, uh, he was sent to the Nebraska State Industrial School, which back then it's pretty much like juvenile detention. Um, and I couldn't pin down the exact years that he was sent there or why, uh, but he was definitely there for a period of at least a year or more. Um, and then in May 1909, he was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary following a conviction for grand larceny. So he was probably released from the industrial school and then within a short period of time found himself in adult prison, which... I can't imagine Missouri, 1909. Like, it was probably pretty yeah. not good. For a juvenile gangster, probably the best place for him. Yeah. So he uh, was sentenced to two years, but he got uh, released a little early. He was released in November of 1910. And then from that point, it seems like he did what a lot of people were doing back then. He followed the railroad west. And by 1915, he was living in Silver Cliff, Colorado. Um, he had some family. His brother was also living in Colorado. So I have a feeling he probably wanted to make a fresh start and figured he'd go hang out with his brother. Okay. So at this point, um, it's getting close to the First World War, and he uh, fills out his draft registration, and he lists his name as Elmer Lewis de Grey. <laughs> Fancy. But, you know, if he's trying to hide for whatever reason, he doesn't do a good job of it because 
Um, his date of birth matches our Elmer. It's the same guy. Um, and he lists his place of birth as France. So <laughs> I, can, the, I can just imagine the thought process. Um, uh, my name's Elmer. Great. How do I make it sound uh, French? Uh, I know. De Grey. Right. <laughs> I am from France. My name is Elmer Louis de Grey. No. Yeah. No. So that's the first time, at least in the historical record, where you can see that he's, you know, playing games. And um, it's also the first time that we get to see his signature, which uh, his signature is extremely odd. Um, and his signature remains the same weird signature throughout his life. Um, and that is a great way to help me know that when I'm looking through records that I'm even if he's changed things like his name or his date of birth he's got that weird little signature so I can totally say like this is the same guy yeah yeah and and looking at the signature I've got it here in front of me it uh and we'll include it in some of the premium content but it it just looks like uh cursive very well formed cursive but it looks like you were writing it while you were going down a, a very very bumpy road or you know it, while it was on a vibrating table or something like that it's very tight, you know, squiggles that make up the cursive. It's really interesting to look at. So 1915 to 1932, uh, it seems that Elmer stayed out of trouble. He was living in Denver. Um, like I said, his brother lived nearby. So maybe having his brother that close kind of helped keep him on the straight and narrow. And he was making a living as a laborer. Um, I have a feeling that he probably worked for the railroad as a laborer in some capacity because it seems like he was often um, traveling to different hubs like Ogden or places in Idaho and things like that. So he would always kind of wind up in cities that were near a big train depot. But he didn't stay out of trouble for very long because from 1932 to 1934, um, he was again arrested and convicted of larceny and was spending time in the Colorado State Penitentiary. And this is where we get to see him for the first time. Um, and he looks, you know, pretty, pretty normal, I guess. He doesn't look too crazy at this point. Looks like a shyster. Yeah, he definitely looks like a rogue. Kind of that uh, twinkle in his eye and, and half smile. So um, after he gets out of the Colorado State Penitentiary, he heads to Utah. Um, and this is where his his biggest, I guess, trouble starts. Um, by August 1937, he was um, in Utah and he was caught breaking into the Camas 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 Camas. You got to get the Utah accent in there. Camus. I don't think that's ever going to happen. So he's breaking into the Camas Confectionery Building. Let me be your guy. Okay. He was caught by the building's owner. So is that is that like a candy store or a candy company or something? Yeah, factory? I mean, it seems like from what I could tell, it looked like it was a candy store a little bit and like a corner store, kind of like a Walgreens maybe would be today. Okay. Um, but he was busted by the store's owner. Um, he was immediately arrested and taken to jail. It doesn't sound like he put up too much of a fight. Um, I'm not sure what he was thinking yeah. he just, would get. Just my life. Arrested again, back to jail. Right. Yeah. Um, there's also some, there were some um, news articles around the same time of basically hobos that had been arrested or were 
brought in for questioning about uh, car issues. Like they're not stealing a car, but they were caught acting funny around a car. Like they were going to steal the car or do something to the car. Um, and I, I didn't include it because I can't 100% say it was him. However, the name that was used would be one of his well-known aliases and uh, the time frames all fit. Hmm. So he, I, I, he was constantly looking for trouble. What kind of aliases did he use? Like guy incognito or? No, not quite. Not quite that bad. I'll get to it though. I don't want to give it away yet. So um, he's taken to jail. He is charged with second degree burglary. And this is where he gives his alias, which is Woodrow Lamb. That's more creative than his draft record. It is. I'm not quite sure where he came up with that one. Um, In September 1937, he pled guilty and was sentenced to an indeterminate term in the Utah State Prison in Sugar House. What does that mean? Indeterminate? You're just like in there until you're in timeout until I say you're not? Exactly. Jeez. So they could, um, you know, file for parole. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I come out now? Pardons, Mm. which he filed a lot of pardons. I would too if I were sentenced to an indeterminate term. I mean, that's just question marks all over. Yeah. So he is in the Sugar House prison um, and he, this is kind of when he starts just going off the rails um he he's filed for his first pardon like within a year of being actually sent to the prison um and in it he claimed that he didn't know what offense he committed uh he said he was never arrested he never appeared in court um and he hadn't been able to speak with a lawyer because he was sick so basically elmer's argument was that he didn't do anything wrong he was never caught doing anything he never was charged went to court nothing like they just threw him in jail which is weird because we have his signature on the the charging documents like he signed it um so it's not like you know now a, a pardon request goes to the governor right right so he's writing letters to the governor well the state board oh okay okay i don't know if the governor would have reviewed him, but he's a busy guy. So his story, his first story, because it changed. But Elmer's first story was that he was vacationing in Utah um, before <laughs> going back to work in Iowa, which is strange because we know that he had been living in Colorado and that um, he was currently being held hostage by Utah authorities. So that was wow. his thing, you know, that he didn't do anything wrong and they just picked him up and were holding him hostage. Jeez. He is a storyteller. Yeah. Well, it gets better. So then the next parole attempt was September 1938. So actually, he had two parole or pardon attempts in a single, in year. A single year. Oh, boy. This guy. So September 1938, um, he changes his story. He says that he was camping near the Heber River with his wife, who he, he names as Florence Potvin. I've never been able to find any record anywhere of anyone even with that name that could fit the, the time frame here. Um, but he was arrested with his wife, Florence, or excuse me. He was camping near the Heber river with his wife, Florence on August 6, 1937, um, said that he was robbed and shot twice. And his wife was murdered and robbed of $1,600. Jeez. 
to give you an idea of the amount of money today, that would equal almost thirty thousand dollars. So in cash, you're just carrying yeah. It so he's saying while you're camping, right? That they're carrying around all this money. Good lord. He went on to say that his car was stolen along with all of their personal belongings. Um, and he didn't even try to like explain what he was doing in the confectionery or why he, you know, didn't have any gunshot wounds when he was arrested. Wow. He just insisted that he had been kidnapped by the state of Utah and was held without any trial process. At the very least, this is interesting reading for the parole board. Oh. Oh, twice in a year. This is a trip. Here comes this this guy's story again. What does he got to say? I'm sure he became very, very annoying to them very quickly. (laughs) I'd be looking forward to the next page turner, you know? What's the story this time? Yeah. Oh, camping with 28 grand on the side of the river. Interesting. Right. So 1941, he tries again. Um, This time, however, instead of using Woodrow Lamb, he uses his real name. But he held to the previous story that um, he hadn't committed any crime and was being held illegally. And obviously, like, they still did not go for it. This time, for sure, I'm telling the truth, guys. But, right. So January 1945, he, um, he tries again. He tells the truth. Still didn't happen for him. Finally, July 11th, 1948. He's now 67 years old, by the way. Um, he is released from prison. So he served what? 11 years? Yeah. Okay, so that, that is the sordid tale of Elmer's history. Now we're going to move into when Lily met Elmer and the next part of, of this varied tale of uh, crime and craziness. Yeah, I wish that I could give like this great explanation as uh, how the two of them met. Um, But honestly, I I have no clue. There's just nothing. There's, you know, a lot of people might have bits and pieces in the newspaper based on things that they do, like she did when she was in Chicago. But once Lily ended up in Salt Lake, there's just really, there's nothing. Um, But somehow they met, I'm, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably through church or something. I don't know. Um, But on July 11th, 1952, so four years to the day after Elmer was released from prison, um, the two of them are getting married at the courthouse in Elko, Nevada. So at this time, he's 71 and she's 72. Um, After the wedding, they rented a really small house. I have a picture of it. It's tiny. Um, It was not fancy at all. In fact, it did not even have indoor like it didn't have an indoor bathroom. Yeah, so these these houses at the time they were they were tiny. You, you think tract houses are are tiny. These were basically salt shaker boxes, um, just like a square with a bedroom, a kitchen, a parlor, no bathroom, unless you know you paid for the the nice model or something like. So that. would they have like an outhouse in the backyard? Yeah, yeah. no, it, it would be like an alley in the back, maybe, or you know, you just kind of. Dug a pit back by the chicken coop kind of thing. That's crazy because this is 1952. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so for anyone that's interested, they lived in a house at 1216 Pacific Avenue. Um, their house was torn down many, many years ago, and today it's an apartment building. So there's really nothing to see there, but gives you an idea of where they were living. They're married six years. He doesn't seem to get into any trouble. It appears that he had been working as a butcher or that's just another story he made up. 
I don't know. Um, but Lily died on November 14th, 1958 at the Salt Lake General Hospital. She was buried on November 19th. Um, and her obituary was extremely short and to the point. Um, I don't think Elmer wrote it because I don't think he was capable of containing himself to keep it so succinct. Like it was basically all information and well, judging by the epitaph and the stories he would tell, who knows what, uh, what kind of story he would tell. Right. Right. I'm guessing if I had to guess, I'm thinking that the funeral home wrote it based on information that, that he gave them. And, you know, maybe he was giving them such weird stories that they were like, okay, we're just going to keep this short. Sure, to sure. The point. And, and you pay per word. So maybe it was, I mean, we're, we're coming up with stories. This is almost better than my grandma, grandma Jones introducing him down at the drugstore <laughs> or something like that when she was 13. But, um, you know, it, it was a short obituary, obviously low, low cost, very few words said, um, who knows how, how much involvement Elmer had in that. But sounds like he was kind of off the rails by then anyway. Yeah. So um, Lily and Elmer, not only did they obviously never have children together, but neither of them had children in their other relationships. So um, at the time of Lily's death, she the only family that she had was some nieces and nephews. And I don't believe they lived in Utah. But like I said, I, I wasn't able to totally pinpoint that. Um, following Lily's death, Elmer kept a pretty low profile. His name popped up from time to time, but um, it was mostly him placing ads in the newspaper looking for a live-in caretaker, mm. which tells me he was not in good health. Right. Right. So uh, Elmer died on Halloween day, 1964. <laughs> he actually died in a local nursing home um, and was pronounced dead on arrival at St. Mark's hospital. He was 83 years old. And Elmer doesn't appear to have had any family left at this point. Um, if any of his siblings were still living, they were either in Missouri or Colorado and right. no one came forward. So there either wasn't a good relationship there or sure. they didn't well, know. I'm probably in and out of touch, too, because of his stretches in prison. Right. So he died. Um, and funny thing is, is he is buried like on the far like the opposite end of the cemetery you would think that they would you know have been buried next to each other but yeah he's really far away from where she's buried well and, and she's all in single plots up there as well can't imagine they had too much money to reserve a plot for him at the time you know they both died pretty elderly right at the time funny thing is they elmer's actually buried across the street from my family's plot so it's we, we looked all over the place and took a stroll and it's like, oh, there's the family plot. Oh, there's Elmer. It's so wild. So we can, can kind of visit him when we visit ours. too. <laughs> His headstone is totally normal, really basic uh, name, you know, date of birth and the date of death. And that's it. Mm -hmm. But we need to get back to her headstone because he's the one that was responsible for that epitaph. That's right. That's right. Now. How old was he when, when Lily died? Because she was like 72, 73, right? Um, let's see. So she would have been 80? Yeah. 78. 78. She was 78. Yeah. And he was a year younger, so he was 77. Okay. 
So 78, 77. Obviously not working a whole lot. Short on money. Managed to pay for Lily's headstone and puts that on it. Right. Yeah. So obviously, like, he's still holding a grudge for something, right? Something with someone. Yeah. I think the answer is... I don't think he was a fan of of government mm-hmm. and it, especially Utah government, it seems to sure. me. But um, that's the theory that he hated the state government. He somehow blamed them for her death. Maybe he's, you know, confusing her with his make believe wife that was murdered years and years and years ago. Yeah. So it's just it seems so delusional. Yeah. That. That somebody would write that on a headstone and have this old lady remembered for that. I mean, it's great. You know, great, great stories, you know, going through time, great stories for us today. But, um, you know, what would lead somebody to put that on your wife's headstone? Right. You know, it's definitely anger. Yeah. You know, if, if you're saying, you know, victim of the devil, the devil killed my wife kind of thing. It seems like it would, would infer some... Some hurt feelings, right. some anger, some, you know, some retribution of some sort and making it a monument, you know, that's, you know, un, un, unerasable on this. Yeah, she's going to have that forever to the yeah. to the point where, you know, people blog about it. Um, there's been podcasts about it. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's her headstone has like made the rounds of the Internet. You can find it mentioned oh, sure. numerous places, you know, with yeah, worldwide with these crazy you know, stories about why it was put there. Um, But I really think that um, obviously Elmer was dealing with some mental health issues. And I think that his death certificate more so than Lily's kind of gives maybe a clue into why he acted the way that he did at least partially. Okay. So besides the delusions, what, what was going on with Elmer? Well, I think you can find, um, like an example in his signature, his right. really squiggly, squiggly signature, right? Mm-hmm. So um, on Elmer's death certificate, um, it said that he died from natural causes. And one of the things that he was suffering from at the time of his death was Parkinson's disease. And I think a lot of people are familiar with Parkinson's disease as causing tremors to the point where it's debilitating sometimes, um, a lot of the times, and, and will eventually kill people. Um, But one of the things I think that people might not realize is that Parkinson's causes other symptoms as well. So like non-motor symptoms like hallucinations and delusions. And here's the guy that definitely seemed deluded for a large chunk of time, at least when he was in the state penitentiary. Right. So now Parkinson's disease, I just looked it up. It was discovered in 1817, but they only called it the shaking palsy. So it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of research or study going on about Parkinson's disease at the time. But now that we know, you know, this is a symptom and it kind of folds in with, you know, his delusions and um, potential hallucinations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that's that that to me would make more sense than him just having this hatred for the Utah state government. Right. Right. So poor Lily, she's she's stuck with that forever. Well, she doesn't care anymore. Right. So she wasn't, you know, she wasn't killed by Satanists or murdered in some horrific manner. She just married a crazy guy. 
Wow. Wow. Well, so be careful who you marry because you don't know what will end up on your headstone. That's right. That's right. What do you want on your headstone? Actually, you know, I kind of want something crazy. So then people have to dig and figure out what really happened to me. Cool. You better start thinking about it now. Yeah, yeah. And I screwed up the joke. I should have asked you what you wanted on your tombstone. Because then I would have said, pepperoni and olives. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, that's that's the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We'd really love to hear feedback from you. Um, we're putting together a Patreon program as well so that you can you can help support us as well as get amazing spiffs. We're putting the program together. We'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes. We'll be including premium material for, for subscribers as well that you're just going to love. It really helps to illustrate the story. So anyway, we hope, we hope to hear from you. We'll, you'll hear from us soon. We're having a blast doing this, and, and we'll have it out to you. And uh, hope to hear from you again soon. For more information in the meantime, you can always visit thedeadhistory.com. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under The Dead History. So we would love, you know, like and comment. Leave us any feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Take care.